All right, if we open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 18, we will see the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. These two chapters are the preparation, God preparing the people to receive the law. So next week is the giving of the Ten Commandments, but this week is the preparation for it. It's a good chapter. It talks about how to prepare our hearts. It's a good application for us. So let's pray. Lord, thank you, Lord, for the truth in your word again. Lord, it's the same every week. We learn and then we apply. And the more we apply, the more you'll teach us. Help us, Lord, to, Lord, not to be like those people who look in the mirror and forget what they look like, Lord, but help us to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, just to remind you, back in Exodus chapter 4, Moses was on his way to Egypt, and God pinned him down and was about to kill him. Do you remember why? That's right, he hadn't circumcised his sons. So Zipporah, his wife, did the job for him, and then God let Moses go. We don't know the exact situation, but Moses sent his wife and child home, and they went back. And it could be because she was quite angry with him because the language there shows that she was quite annoyed with Moses and this custom of circumcision and also the fact that Moses didn't take responsibility to do it himself. But here, if we're going to read in the first couple of verses, Moses gets another chance. His wife comes back. So this is a family reunion for Moses with his wife and his two sons and also with his father-in-law, Jethro. So let's read the first two verses. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for his people, and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zephorah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a stranger in a foreign land, and the name of the other was Eliza, for he said, The Lord of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. So it's interesting, Eliza was the name of Abraham's servant, who got the wife of Isaac. And it means, God is my help. And Gershom means, I have been a stranger in a foreign land. So for us, the picture is, we're stranger in a foreign land, and God is our help to get through this land. So that's Moses' testimony as he's given that testimony in the way he's named his sons. So, And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down, and kissed him. And they asked each other about their well-being, and they went into the tent. So a typical Middle Eastern welcome, lunch, all that kind of thing, meal together, communion type thing. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had come upon them on the way and how the Lord had delivered them. So Moses is giving his testimony, basically. He's telling about what God has done 
for him and for Israel. And it's not what I have done from Moses' perspective. You know, I went and saw Pharaoh and I did this and I put my rod over the sea and the waters parted. No, it was like God did all these things. So he gave God the glory. And despite all the hardships that have come our way, we give God the glory. Our testimony is how God has delivered us from those things. So, unfortunately, there's many today who take the glory for themselves. But as soon as we start taking the glory for ourselves, well, the Bible says that God doesn't share his glory. So if we start taking his glory, then he will stop using us. We can go through the motions, but his power won't be there. We need to give credit to God. Verse 9, Then Jethro rejoiced for all the good which the Lord had done for Israel whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. So here's Jethro, this Gentile, rejoicing about all the good which the Lord has done for Israel. And we do that today too. We rejoice that Israel is back in their land, and we rejoice for the future too, though it's going to be a hard road for them. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. So going back to the very start of Exodus, it was all about God gaining glory over the gods of Egypt. And here's the pinnacle of it here. This is a testimony of a Gentile, Jethro. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. For in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and other sacrifices to offer to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. So Moses has the big picture here. He's got the big picture. He's telling them all the things that God has done. You know, sometimes we can take our eyes off the big picture little example here. We were camping and we took our dogs and we were laying on the rocks looking at the stars. What, what do you think the dogs are doing? They were sniffing around or sleeping or, you know, whatever they were doing. Looking for other scents. But they missed the beauty of the scene. They missed that beautiful display of stars in the sky. And we can have our nose down in the bushes, so to speak. You know, looking for stuff and being busy in the things of the world. But we need to take our eyes off the things of the world and look up and see the big picture. And that causes people to rejoice. It causes people to realize that God is in control, that God is He's having his way in our lives. So there's been a lot of trials and complaints and battles and now it's a chance for them. They're going to be here for a while. I think it's like 11 months or a year or something like that. It's a place of quiet. It's a place of family fellowship and a daily business. So there's going to be seasons where life is really tough, and there's going to be seasons where life is nice. It's just, okay, we've been to a routine now. It's kind of everything's going all right. No one's getting sick, not for at least two weeks or something like that. So there are seasons in our lives. But what do we remember the most? The good times or the bad times? 
Charles Spurgeon said that God's people are prone to engrave their trials in marble and write their blessings in the sand. So we tend to forget the good times and remember the hard times more. wisby has got a quote about this. He says, But the best thing about this paragraph is that everybody is praising the Lord for all he did for his people. Praising God is much better than complaining to God. In fact, praise is a good antidote for a complaining spirit. There is a great deal more in the Bible, or said in the Bible, about praise than prayer, said Evangelist D.L. Moody. Yet how few praise meetings there are. So, often we're complaining, but we should be praising. In everything give thanks. Verse 13, And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So, they had rules for the camp. And so, with any rule, there's got to be interpretation of the rule. And it's like the kids. You have rules in your household, and you've got to interpret those rules, and the kids will often argue the point. So, it's the same kind of thing here. They're saying, well, why did this, and they did that, and there's all these kind of complaints and arguments, and Two million people. So let's just say that 1% had a problem. Two million people would be 20,000. So you imagine this massive line of people, and the father-in-law says, verse 14, So when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people, he said, What is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit, and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me, and I judge between one and another, and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out, for this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. So basically, Moses, you're going to burn out if you keep doing this. It's just too much for you. You've got to slow down. You've got to find a different way of getting the job done. Verse 19. Listen now to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes, and the laws, and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. So, what was Moses' job? To teach and to show and to equip others. Okay. Moreover, verse 21, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. So, Basically, Moses is going to delegate. He's going to give some of his responsibility, some of his authority to other people. And this is common sense. But there's a catch here. It says, who are you going to give your authority to? Who are you going to give the responsibility to? Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. In other words, they're not going to be bribed. They've got to have integrity. So, remember in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 7, 
the apostles were busy doing menial tasks, and so they said, let's get some deacons, like Stephen and another six of them, the seven deacons there. And what were their qualifications? They said, good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, and approved by the people. So that's important. What about pastors, elders, and deacons? You'd like to read this with me? It's First Timothy. It's First Timothy chapter 3. And there's a reason I'm going into this. It's because this is one area the church is compromising in, in selecting people to be leaders who shouldn't be leaders. So First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 on. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop or elder, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Verse 8. Likewise, deacons must be reverent, not double-tongued, not given too much wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. So you, you see the similarities there between the criteria in Moses' day to here hasn't really changed much. But let those also first be tested, and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So it's important that you give people like an apprenticeship, that they can be tested, they can, be, you can see what they're made of. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. So, the taking on responsibility is a blessing. Yes, it's a responsibility, but it's a blessing as well. So, I'm not going to go through all the character traits, but I was having this conversation with a guy yesterday. I won't use names, but... and. The people are looking for a pastor. And he's frustrated because the people are not using these criteria to select the pastor. The people are using the criteria of, is this pastor friendly? Is this pastor going to teach nice messages? Is this pastor going to bring more people into the church? That's their criteria. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You know, He's got to teach the Bible. He's got to teach the whole counsel of God. And they go, well, that'll offend people. And no, he's got to believe in Genesis. Oh, that you know, that, that's, that's divisive. Yeah, it's not really relevant. So that's the debate that's going on in this church at the moment as they're looking for a pastor. So there's a tendency in the church today to overlook these godly character traits and instead, as I just said, choose someone who's popular, friendly, and will draw people in. Someone who is appointed by man but not necessarily anointed by God. So. The difference between appointing and anointing is man does the appointing, but God does the anointing. 
the ideal situation is you watch someone, you see the anointing of God on their lives, the gifting of God on their lives, and then you appoint them to that role because they'll already be doing it anyway. It will just come naturally to them. They'll already be helping. They'll already be administrating. They'll already be doing whatever the gift is that they have. You watch them, see what their gift is, see what their ministry is, see what their calling is, because it will just come out naturally as they mature in their walk with God. And you say, okay, well, you're already doing this, so let's appoint you to that role. A lot of churches do it the other way. They appoint someone when they might not have the anointing. So it's not the best situation. Someone who will not offend people. Someone who will not cause people to feel uncomfortable. Someone who will make people feel good about themselves. Why has it got like this? Because in many churches it's not about holiness anymore. It's not about our sanctification and growing in the Lord. It's not about discipleship anymore. It's not about speaking the truth in love anymore. It's not about repentance from sin. Instead, it's all about numbers. In the eyes of many people, success in the church is measured by numbers and finances, not by holiness, fruitfulness, faithfulness, repentance, or changed lives. So the only way to be a seeker-friendly church is to compromise, to not speak the whole counsel of God. But Jesus himself said that many would be offended because of his message. So we need to expect to offend people, not purposefully. Think of the rich young ruler. Most churches would take this guy. What must I do to be saved? Oh, welcome, welcome. You know, just say the sinner's prayer and sign this form. You can remember this church, you know, if they're a membership church. But Jesus didn't. Instead, he was truthful with the young man. And what he said worked the young man's conscience, like ploughed his conscience. He says, are you willing to repent? And the man said, no. He walked away sad. So Jesus said, okay, bye-bye. But the Holy Spirit will continue to work in him after that ploughing of his conscience, that softening of his conscience, of his heart, the softening of his heart. If you'd like to look up John chapter 6, verses 60 to 66, and here's an example of Jesus offending people. And there's a reason, I think, why Jesus said some hard things. And I think it's a good reason why in church we should say some hard things because it sorts out the believers from the non-believers, the pretenders from the true converts, from the false converts. So John chapter 6, verse 60. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples, look at this, it's saying his disciples, right? So the analogy in the church is members in the church or people in the church, people who come to church regularly. He said to them, does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is a spirit who gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Now this is, if you look in the context, this is just after Jesus had multiplied the fish and the bread, and they were going, Oh, this is a good Savior. He feeds me and he leads me. 
heals me. All these life is good, you know, free meals and healings, and it's great. But when Jesus started saying some hard things, things that confused them, things that they had to accept by faith, it's like, well, no, I don't like that. See ya, I'm out of here. Bye bye. So they were false disciples, just like today we have false converts. They identify with Jesus, but for the wrong reasons. As I said, they were looking for bread, for physical satisfaction, physical blessings. And when the going gets tough, they give up. When they don't get what they want, they disappear. So that's pretty typical. So why should we deal with sin in the church? I'd like to look up another scripture. It's Acts chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. And this is the case where Ananias and Sapphira lied to Peter about how much they sold the land for because they're trying to impress people by saying, oh, we sold the land and gave 100% to the church. But really they kept some back. So we're going to pick it up in verse 7. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together, that's with her husband, to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last, And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church, and upon all who heard these things. That's the people outside the church. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord, or united, in Solomon's porch. Verse 13 is important. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. So there was this holiness in the church. There was this purity. There was this reverence. And, the, and people who weren't believers, they said, you know what? I really appreciate them. That They're good people, but you know what? I don't belong there. And that's good. How did that affect the people around them? And believers were increasingly added to the Lord. It says believers were increasingly added to the Lord. Not just anybody, believers. Multitudes of both men and women. So the the effect is purity. If you deal with sin, the church becomes pure. Those who aren't willing to repent stay away, while those who truly seek Christ will enter in. They'll come. So unfortunately, because of the compromise and the seeker-friendly gospel, you know, the come to Jesus because he will bless you, the church is pretty much full of false converts, people who name the name of Christ, but live like the world. They have never repented and never intend to repent. They're only in it for what they can get out of it. So when a church loses its purity, it also loses its power and influence. It's no longer salt. It's no longer light. So it's really important that we take a stand for truth and not compromise. We must speak the truth in love. We must teach the whole counsel of God. Bible colleges are pumping out pastors that don't believe in a literal genesis the rapture of the church, for example, and there are many other holes in their thinking. They're not trained up so much to be skilled to divide and understand the word of God, but rather how to grow a church or run a youth ministry and things like that. And many churches are struggling to find Bible-believing, whole counsel of God teaching pastors who are willing to go through and teach the hard parts of the word of God. There's a guy... 
came here, a family came here not so long ago, and they said they came from the UK, and they said there's nine churches in our area, in our suburb, and none of them teach the Word of God. So we have to go outside of our suburb to go to a church that teaches the Word of God. So this is everywhere. If you'd like to look up Second Timothy chapter 4, this is the good example. This is Paul's admonition to Timothy about what we should be doing. And also, it's a warning. It's a warning what's going to happen in the last days. And I believe that we're in the last days because we see this happening right now. So 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-5. to It says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, this is Paul talking to Timothy, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and teaching, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure inflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So, today, the latest here in church, this is the day when people are not enduring sound doctrine. And it's only going to get worse. Let's go back to Exodus, verse 21. And place such over them, these vetted rulers, leaders, who have been chosen, have good character, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden with you. Now, that word easier, it's a picture. It means to take some cargo off a ship. So if the ship is weighed down in the water, it's got too much cargo, you take the cargo off and it makes the ship lighter. So that's what they're doing. They're taking stuff off Moses and putting it onto someone else. Now, Numbers 11.14, with the new arrangement with all these people serving rules of 10, rules of 50, 100, etc., 1,000, Moses says there, he confesses that the work was too hard for me. So how much more harder was it when he's doing it all himself? So it doesn't mean it made it easy for Moses, but at least it made it doable. So don't expect life to be easy. 23, if you do this thing, and, and notice Jethro says, and God so commands you. That's important. We can recommend something to someone, but we should also say, if it's God's will. We don't force our opinions on people. Jethro was offering a solution, but he wasn't expecting Moses just to do it because it was his idea. So, And so God commands you, um, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also go to their place in peace. So, Moses was God's chosen leader, and nobody could take his place until his work was done. But he didn't have to do all the work alone. And that's a principle we can apply in all our lives, in our families, in our workplaces, and but especially church. 
And here's another principle. Whenever ministry and structure collide and ministry is being hindered, God's people must adjust the structure so ministry can grow. So if the way we're doing things is not working, like we've got the need that we're trying to meet in the community or within our families or wherever it is, and it's just difficult the way things are structured, then we change. We just do things differently. And it's like the apostles choosing the deacons to work and it freed them up to be more effective in their ministry. They had to change the way they were doing things. So Christian ministries must be flexible if they are to solve their problems and seize their opportunities. All right, verse 24 in Exodus. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. That's humility. Moses is the leader of three million people. He's been in front of Pharaoh. He's probably the most powerful, practically, he's the most powerful man. He's defeated the armies of Pharaoh. That's humanly speaking. And he listens to other people. This is another very important character trait of Moses, his humility, his meekness. He listens to other people. So we need to be people who can listen to other people's advice. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. So Moses is teaching them, he's discipling these people to do the job that he's giving them. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart and he went away to his own land. Now, this is a picture of elders. So Moses is appointing people to have responsibility. It's a picture of like eldership. And Numbers 11.17 tells us that God would take the same spirit that was upon Moses and place it upon them. So if they're all operating by the same spirit, it means there's unity. So if we're all being led by the Holy Spirit, there should be unity in the church. Jesus did the same thing. He picked 12 men. And they basically became apostles or, in a figurative sense, like elders. And Paul goes through in the epistles and explains this too. Basically, we work together, stand together, and care for God's flock. Now, some people call this the Moses model of church government because in the New Testament there's two models of church government. In 1 Timothy 3, 2-7, talks about the church being led by a bishop or overseer or pastor. That's the episcopos, one man leading. And then Acts 14.23 describes a rule by a board of elders, a presbyteros. Paul went around and he appointed elders in the churches. So he went to one place and appointed several elders and they would be in charge of the church. So that's Acts 14.23. But here in Exodus, it's a combination of both. We still have the leader, but we also have the elders. The decisions are coming from the elders and the leader. The leader has the final say, but the elders are making decisions off their own back. On the smaller decisions, Moses doesn't have to worry about that because they're making the decisions. Moses is not doing everything. And so that's a sharing of authority and responsibility. But one man is like the lead or head pastor. So that's basically the Calvary Chapel way of doing things. We call it the Moses model. It's like a board of elders with one person being having the overall responsibility, but not micromanaging everything. There's another model of church government, which is fairly common in churches today, and that's called 
congregational rule where the congregation decides. But I don't think there's any basis for this in Scripture. And I think it's a dangerous thing for a church to be a democracy, to let the majority rule, because the majority can be wrong. And if you've got new believers in the church or you've got false converts in the church, people who aren't Christians, who say they're Christians, but they can lead the church astray, they can lead to compromise. All right, chapter 19. This is an awesome chapter. God is going to speak audibly, especially in chapter 20, and God is going to prepare them now. So we've dealt with in chapter 18 how God is organizing them and making it work so they can have a functioning government, so to speak. Now God is preparing them to receive the law. Eleven months, if you compare this verse with Numbers chapter 10, verse 11. And they're going to be given the entire law and also the instructions for the construction of the tabernacle. So they're going to spend this time building the tabernacle as well. So verse 2, For they had departed from Rephidim and had come to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness. So Israel camped before the mountain. So this is the only place where God speaks, or as far as I know, where God speaks to a whole nation audibly, where Moses speaks and God answers. It's just incredible. Now, what does Mount Sinai mean? Well, it means thorny, I've read. And it's a kind of a good description of the law because the law is perfect and good and glorious, but it pricks mankind because we can't keep it. <laughs> and Mount Sinai is also called Mount Horeb in Scripture. Now, Horeb means to kill or destroy. And that's what the law does. It kills me because I'm sinful. It tells me that I need a saviour. Points me to Jesus. Verse 3, And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians. So, when God tells us things to do, it's not because he's in a mean ogre trying to stop us from having fun. He's reminding them here of his provision, his protection, and his guidance. And he's saying, I want you to do what I'm asking you to do because I love you. He's a loving father. He wants the best for his children. And someone said, that's why communion is so very important. Every time I come to the Lord's table, I'm reminded again that he loves me to death. And the second part of verse 4, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And this is an awesome picture. Does anyone know how eagles train their eaglets? It's a pretty amazing story. Yeah. They're at Mount Sinai, and this is an awesome picture. God uses pictures that people can see, that they can understand. So it's a big, tall mountain, and there's cliffs and everything, and there's eagles flying around. And so God tells them, I bore you on eagles' wings. What they do I'll just read out to you Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 11 and 12. It expands on this idea of like an eagle. It says, Deuteronomy 32, verse 11 and 12, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreading out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So the Lord alone led him, and there was no foreign God with him. So verse 11, As an eagle stirs up its nest, hovers over its young, spreads out its wings, taking them up, carrying them on its wings. So that's a picture, pretty good description, of how the parent eagle will tip up the nest, 
a little bird will fly out, or will fall out, I should say. Can't fly yet. Go down, 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 down. The parent bird is hovering over the young one, and it's just about to hit the floor, and it goes underneath, catches it, and takes it back up. A few days later, does it again, and again, and again. And why? Because one day, that little bird will learn to fly, and the mother won't have to catch it anymore. The bird will take off and soar to new heights. It can leave the nest. That little bird has been set free to experience life in an entirely different dimension with a higher perspective than he had ever had previously. Faith cannot grow in comfort and security. God will knock us out of our nest of cozy complacency from time to time. He will do that so we can learn to fly higher. Isaiah 40.31 They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. So to wait on the Lord doesn't mean to sit around and have a snooze until he comes. It's to trust. It's to stop squawking and start flying. So God delivers his people on the wings of an eagle. Don't be a squawker. Say, okay, Lord, you're allowing this to happen in order to teach me to soar higher than I've ever flown before, to see more, to understand more. So the eaglets illustrate three aspects of freedom. There's freedom from, they're out of the nest. There's redemption, out of the world. Freedom in, they're at home in the air. Before you leave the nest, you don't know how to fly. That space up there in the sky is like out of bounds for you. You can't get up there. You can't be there. For us as Christians, we want to be free to be in the air. We need to grow up. We need to be walking in the Spirit. So this is a picture of maturity. And the freedom too, so we can fulfill God's purpose for our life, our ministry. So true freedom means that we're delivered from doing the bad We're able to do the good, and we're accomplishing God's will on earth. So from God's point of view, Egypt was a furnace of affliction for Israel. The iron furnace, etc. Slavery, all that. But the Jews often saw Egypt as a nest where they at least had food, shelter, and security. So they wanted to go back to that little nest where things they knew, things where they were comfortable. But God tipped up the nest and he kicked them out. So they're learning to fly. They're learning and they're experiencing growing pains as they grow or they move towards maturity. A quote from Wisby, he says, When we're maturing in the Lord, life becomes a series of open doors that lead to more and more opportunities for responsible freedom. But if we refuse to let God mature us, life becomes a series of confining iron bars that limit us. A baby is safe and comfortable in the mother's womb. But at some point, the baby must be born and enter a new and demanding world of growth and maturity. From birth to death, the turning points of life usher in new freedoms that bring with them new privileges and new responsibilities. Walking instead of being carried. And then you've got running instead of walking, riding a bike, driving a car, working at a job, etc. And so you go on and on. And so the important thing is to realize that at each turning point, at each stage of growing up, we lose something to gain something else. You stop crawling so you can walk. You stop walking so you can run. So we have to give up something to get the the better. And every time we want to go back to Egypt, God disciplines them. Do we want to be disturbed? 
or do you want to stay in the nest? Do you want to grow? One more quote. If freedom doesn't lead to maturity, then we end up imprisoned in a bondage worse than what we had before. A bondage from within and not from without. It's bad enough to be enslaved by an Egyptian taskmaster by the world, but it's even worse to enslave yourself and become your own taskmaster by your flesh. All right, verse 5. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So, special treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. they sound familiar to you from the New Testament, Peter? So let's have a look at those phrases there. First Peter 2.9, he calls us a royal priesthood. Now, what happens when we turn inward? The Jews turned inward so much that if they accidentally touched a Gentile, they would take off their clothes and burn them and ceremonially cleanse himself in order to rid himself of the pollution caused by the Gentile. It sounds ridiculous to us in our culture, but guess what? If we lose our passion for the lost, we're doing the same thing. Just not in the same way. Does that make sense? If we lose our passion for the lost like the Jews did, they turn inward, focused on themselves, they lost their focus on the world around them, he saved them to be an example to the lost. Basically, we're, don't touch me. I don't want to be with them. You know, I don't want to talk to them. I don't care if they're going to hell. So, why are they a, a special nation, God's holy people? Is it because they're better? No. Absolutely not. There's scriptures that tell us that God chose them not because they're better, but because they were the smallest. God chooses us the same way. Jews is the foolish, to shame the weak, etc. But God chose them, it says in Romans 9, verses 4 and 5, to be a blessing for the whole world. John 4, 22 says, Salvation is of the Jews. It started with the Jews. And because they have these treasures and privileges, they also have a greater responsibility to love and obey God. Luke 12, 48 says, For the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be required. And the same principle applies to us. We've been given this responsibility to reach out to the world. We have a massive amount of responsibility and we need to be faithful to do what God wants us to do. The kingdom of priests, verse 6. So later on, Aaron and his sons will be priests. But it's God's intent that we all live as priests. What does a priest do? Communicates God's truth to the people around them. So we're a priest to those around us because we communicate God's truth to the world. God wanted Israel to be his showcase to the Gentiles, proving to them that there is one God, one true and living God, and that serving him is the way to fullness of blessing, Isaiah 42, 6 and 49, 6. Unfortunately, instead of influencing the world to worship God, Jehovah, Yahweh, Israel allowed themselves to be influenced by the nations around them and they defiled themselves and they went into captivity. So the church today can go two ways. We can influence the world for good or we can be influenced by the world and we can just fall into oblivion. 
will have no influence or very little influence. So the next phrase there is a holy nation. What's holiness? You are to be my people. Chapter 22, verse 31. That is, a people set apart for God, a people who are different. Now, many times in the scriptures, you read, Be holy, for I am holy. At least six times in Leviticus and a couple of times in First Peter. So what does it mean? Well, because they were governed by God, because they belonged to God, then what they ate, for this is for the Israelites, what they ate, what they wore, who they married, how they buried their dead, and how they worshipped, all had to be done God's way. And because we belong to God, we need to live God's way too. We don't have all those laws, but we have to live in a way that honours the Lord. We need to do the right thing. We need to love people, do things selflessly. Remember the two commandments that sum up the entire law? To love the Lord your God and love everyone else. So another thing here, during the plagues in Egypt, God put a difference between them and the Egyptians. Basically saying, you're different. Some of the plagues affected both, but the last few of them, they didn't affect the Israelites. They were protected. They were different. And God is teaching the people to separate the holy from the unholy, to separate the clean from the unclean, to make a difference between the clean and the unclean. And you'll see that in the Scripture a lot too, all throughout the Old Testament. And the priests failed to do this. And the sin helped lead the nation into defilement and destruction. So the same is true today. As the church, we can lead the world into a place where they can see God, they can see the truth of God's glory, God's power, or we can just be influenced by the world, not be different from the world, and our influence is very minor. So First Peter chapter 2, verse 5 and verse 9 says, And call the church a holy priesthood, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So just like Israel of old, God's people today must point people to Jesus and reveal by their words and deeds how wonderful God is. We're, as Paul said, living epistles. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Uh, Verse 7, So Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before them all these words which the Lord commanded him. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Now guess what? They're going to say that three times. All that the Lord has spoken we will do. Do you think they were sincere when they said that? I reckon they were. They were completely sincere, but they were completely incapable of doing what they said they're going to do. So, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, it doesn't matter how many times you say it, I'm going to swim to Woody Island and back. I'm going to swim to Woody Island and back. I can keep saying it, but I'm never going to do it. For me, it's impossible. And... It doesn't change your heart. You can think you're going to do something, but it doesn't change the reality that you can't. We can't live the life that God wants us to live. It takes more than good intentions to live a Christ-like life, to live a victorious life. We need to surrender instead. 
we need to take our hands off the wheel, so to speak. Instead, raise them in dependence on God, like Moses was on the mountain, and uh, tr- and trust Him to do the work in us. So Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord, and that's the model of priestly ministry. Moses told the people the words of the Lord, and then told the Lord the words of the people. That's what Jesus does. So the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Good intentions will not lead you to a victorious life. And uh, from my personal experience, I did that for a long time. I had good intentions. I wanted to do the right thing, but I couldn't do the right thing. And it wasn't until I surrendered, I raised my hands, figuratively speaking, because I don't raise my hands when I pray. The Jews do. So that's why it talks about raised hands, but I surrendered my heart. It's a posture of the heart that really counts. It doesn't matter how you pray. Hands up or hands down, kneeling, laying down the flat on the ground, doesn't matter. But if your heart is humbled before the Lord, if you're depending on Him, then He will do what He wants to do. He's just waiting for us to get out of the way. Father, I just thank you for what we've learned today. Help us to put into practice. Help us to realize it, especially this last bit. We can't serve you just because we want to. We can't serve you because we think we can. We can't do anything on our own strength. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Lord, help us to depend completely on you. And Lord, all the other things we've learned today, we're a kingdom of priests, we're a holy nation, we're a royal priesthood. Lord, help us to live up to what you called us to be. Help us to be different from the world. Help us to be those who minister to the world to share the love of Christ with those around us. And Lord, to have compassion on the lost and not to turn inwards and not care about those around us. Lord, help us to be active and to get out of our comfort zone and seek those who are lost and lead them to you as your spirit leads, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.